1: Slate's Audiobook Club is sponsored by WhisperSync for Voice, an innovation from Amazon and Audible. If you wish you had more time to read, add narration to your Kindle eBooks, read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by listening to audio on your phone. To learn more about WhisperSync for Voice, go to Amazon.com SlateABC.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of August. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm joined in the D.C. studio today by culture editor Dan Coyce. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. And calling in from what I thought was some far-flung European locale, but actually turns out to be Long Island, we are thrilled to have writer and critic Megan O'Rourke. Hey, Megan. Hi. Yes, I'm just back in the
2: States. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well, today we'll be discussing Harper Lee's *Go at a Watchman, and as always, we'll be looking closely at plot and language and characters, so if there's anything you don't want spoiled about this book, please go read A Watchman and then come back. We will be here. All right. Before we dig in, um, maybe you guys want to help me briefly reconstruct the plot, perhaps in case listeners have forgotten the precise order in which the prosy, ideological, interminable conversations unfold. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so mean. just to get this off the bat, go at a Watchman, we are pleasantly reunited with Jean Louise, otherwise known as Scout, from To Kill a Mockingbird. She's come back home to Maycomb, Alabama to visit her father, who is ailing from arthritis and in his usual silent stoic style, won't really talk about it, but she comes home to see him. And basically what follows is this long and painful process of disillusionment as she realizes that this man who she thought was a moral lodestar is actually a bigot.
1: And that the other people in her life that she thought were sort of the simplistic people that a child thinks of adults often being are, in fact, have much more complicated views on race and fitting in in town than she ever anticipated that they did.
2: And I think, you know, a big part of the novel is a, you know, kind of grown-up girl in her 20s goes home, right? And sort of, mm. that, that's a kind of trope we know, right? The sort of, you can't go home again trope. But in this case, it turns out to be super complicated because she's going home in what seems to be the late 1950s after the Supreme Court ruling that NAACP in Alabama. And so all of these things that have been perhaps beneath the surface about race in her town have come in a very ugly way to the forefront. And a big part of the book is her reckoning with what it means to be from this place and what it means to miss it and to want to be, to feel both of it and an exile from
0: it at the same time. I love that point, Megan. I was wondering, first off though, did you guys like this book?
1: I did not. No. <laughs> I found it super boring in a way yeah. that makes me marvel in a, in a lot of ways at the acumen. Of the editor at Lippincott, Tay Hooff, who got this book and saw in it what could be To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, that's a real tribute to this editor, this 1950s book publishing editor in New York, who saw this raw material, extremely raw material, I think, long stretches of which I found just not great at all, and saw that somewhere in here was not just a writer, but the seat of a very different and I would say astonishingly different story with an entirely different attitude towards its characters and an entirely different way of dealing with a reader. And so it's like an instructive book and it's a book that I'm glad exists for the purposes of seeing what it would eventually become. It is not a book that I particularly liked reading. Megan, what about you? I
2: don't like this book and I also don't think it's a good book and I want to say a couple things about that. One is that as Dan has getting it, this is a rough draft. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's hard to talk about this book without talking about its provenance, right? And we can get into that more. But of course, it's come to us as Harper Lee is very, very old. She's not totally clear whether she's in sound mind or not. I confess that I've been finding this whole discussion of its origins and whether it should be published or shouldn't sort of so upsetting that I've been slightly avoiding (laughs) reading about it in detail. But the point being, it seems to be what would be an early draft that normally an editor would edit, but in this case, it's impossible to do so. So it has all of the creaky hinges and extreme awkwardness of a young writer's first draft. And in fact, it feels in places like, you know, Harper Lee is making all of the kind of rookie mistakes that, you know, writing students make. And someone had a quip in one of their reviews about this being the kind of book that should give creative writing students everywhere great hope. (laughs) Because it's it's just that. There's just the kind of awkwardness of the book and the incredible, creaky, ideological, long-set piece conversations, her inability to really deal with the kind of political material that she's trying to deal with, which is very hard to do, but she doesn't do it well. That said, in the middle of it, there are these quite amazing passages of writing that Don't start till about 100 pages in, I thought. And so for the first 100 pages, I thought, could the same person actually have written these books? And then as the book went on, I thought, you know, yes. But there's another reason I don't like the book, and that is that, and we'll have to get into this, but it seems like an incredibly, um, it's politics seem questionable to me, and the kind of rationalizations that it offers and the kinds of accommodations that it makes seem really problematic and not fully worked out. And that's one of the reasons I would think of an editor that you would say, you know what, I don't think we should publish this book right now.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I really want to talk about with you guys is the ending, the realization Mm -hmm. that Scout is meant to come to at the end of the book and what you guys think it means. But it seems to me to be very emblematic of the weird politics of this book and the double weirdness of releasing it in 2015, not just from the standpoint of the state of the writer, who made it, but from the standpoint of the state of the nation that is welcoming it supposedly and buying like millions of copies of this book.
2: It's really fascinating, isn't it? and that the two books that are kind of vying for first place um, mm-hmm. in terms of numbers of copies sold are this and then Tana Hazy Coates' book, Between the World and Me, which is about being a black man in America and a letter to his son and about the fact that sort of the American dream is written, you know, on the backs of slavery, basically. And it's a really powerful book. And this book, I think. Totally makes his point for (laughs) (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah, they ended up coming out the
1: exact same day, in fact. They ended up hitting bookstores the same day, and they are great They're
2: amazing counterpoints. I almost wish we had designed this to talk about the two of them together, because I think that, you know, whatever you might say about, no, there is this American dream that's separate, like, the kinds of accommodations made in *Go at a Watchman, the kinds of accommodations Jean Louise makes at the very end of the book seem to me totally emblematic of what he's talking about.
0: Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think it's very interesting to reread To Kill a Mockingbird and see that sort of animating message of reconciliation and empathy and sort of seeing the humanity in all people. And to some extent, those themes are reprised in *Go at a Watchman, but they're applied to... Bigots and to Atticus in particular, in a way that felt to me almost like a microcosm of lost cause romanticism. Like the idea that you have these sort of flawed figures in the past, and whatever their petty ideological differences from you are, the big point or like the big priority is knitting up these social divisions and coming together as a group and sort of ignoring the underbelly of all the concessions that that might entail. And so, I mean, I do think that this book is a creature of its time and Harper Lee embodies southernness in a lot of ways that are charming and delightful. But in this book seems to be kind of drinking the Kool-Aid in terms of the lost cause and mythology about the Civil War. That was sort of my reaction, and I was very uncomfortable with it, too.
1: Do you guys think that this book then casts a shadow back on To Kill a Mockingbird and, and the characters in that book? I mean, so, you know, do you think that seeing Harper Lee's version, at least, of what Atticus became and the sort of lost cause romanticism that he embraced, do you then look back at To Kill a Mockingbird and see, oh, yeah, it was there— all along. This Atticus from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Oh, I can totally see him 20 years later showing up at yeah. Klan meetings. Or do you mm-hmm. think they're actually different characters that he was changed so much in the editing that he functionally became a different person?
2: No, look, I think there's extraordinary continuity. And this has been one of the critiques of To Kill a Mockingbird. That Atticus Finch is not as sort of, I don't want to say black and white, but he's not as good a man in a certain way as we think he is, right? And Malcolm Gladwell, I think, wrote a piece maybe back in 2009, sort of talking about the ways in which Atticus Finch, you know, really might be said to embody this kind of localism of, you know, the kind of friends and neighbors' attitudes toward politics and toward race and this kind of idea of slow desegregation and, you know, this slightly, these very backward attitudes that he proves himself to have in Ghosts at a Watchman. But they're really there in some ways in still a mockingbird. Having read a lot of the reviews of it beforehand, I thought there would be more of a radical difference than there seems to be. In fact, there seems like quite a lot of continuity in this book with the other book, although his, his views are made more explicit. It's important that they hear he's going to Citizens Committee, are they called? Citizens Committee meetings, not specifically Klan meetings, of course.
0: It's like there. a white Citizens Council or something. Yeah, Citizens yeah. Council,
2: right, very right, exactly.
0: And I also think it's important to note that he is like a fully fleshed out, incredible character, I think, as this man riven by contradictions and, you know, who embraces integrity and the rule of law on one hand, but then has these pretty hateful and paternalistic views on the other. I just think There's been kind of two modes of criticizing Atticus's, quote unquote, transformation. And the first is a kind of sentimental and one that I think is a little bit silly. And it says, oh, but I love this guy who is my hero. He's been... He, He
1: looks just like Gregory Peck. Yeah,
0: like he's been knocked off his pedestal and I'm heartbroken. And therefore, Harper Lee, this book is trash. So that's one reaction. But then I think that the more nuanced and more kind of meaningful... Or the reaction that I'm more inclined to take seriously is okay, we're presented with this complicated character, and in Harper Lee's eyes or in the book's eyes, he actually seems a little bit more rescued or redeemed than perhaps he deserves.
2: In which book? In this one?
0: Yeah, in Watchmen.
2: Well, look, I actually don't find him to be a very nuanced character. I think, in fact, this is the realization of this book is that when it comes to Atticus, he's really not a good character, that he's an incredibly simplistic and in many ways Mm -hmm. sentimentalized character. And that's the whole realization that she has at the end of the book, right, is that she's seen him in one way and that she's turned him into a god. And, of course, he's not a god. He's a complicated man. So in this incredible way she's been... One of the motifs of the book is that she's in blind, mm-hmm. right? And the, the book's title, Go Set a Watchman, comes from the Bible. It comes from Isaiah, and it says something—let um, me find the exact quote— but it's, Go Set a Watchman, let him declare what he seeth. Something like that, right?
1: It's on page 95. We can, in fact, read it to our listeners. Good. In case I've
2: probably garbled it.
1: Isaiah 21, 6. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. You basically got it right.
2: So, you know, I think that— there's an actual little plot in this book, but to the degree that there's a kind of transformation or a, a journey in the book, it's, it's Scouts or Jean Louise's realization that she's been blind. She's been blind to how kind of vicious and nasty the racism of her town is. And she's also been blind to who her father is, right? She's made him a god and, in fact, he's a man. So for me, a really interesting question that this book raises is a question that I've always wondered about to Kill a Mockingbird, which is, you know, and I think many people have asked, which is, was To Kill a Mockingbird a great novel, or was it actually, in some ways, a sentimental and didactic one? You know, are the pleasures of To Kill a Mockingbird actually these local characterizations of place and childhood and summer, not, in fact, the story um, and Atticus as a figure? Or was that part of the story really powerful? And for this, this book, for me, kind of makes me even more suspicious of the plot mechanics of To Kill a Mockingbird than I ever have been.
0: Oh gosh. That's sad to hear. I think there is something bracing about Mockingbird's moral clarity. Like there is something really I mean it's perhaps its methods weren't really complicated, but the amount of emotion that she could make you feel I think was masterful. So I would defend to kill a mockingbird.
1: I also think Mockingbird really benefits from for many 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 readers being their first introduction to these specific moral questions um, and the moral questions that have essentially driven American politics and discourse over the last 200 years. The things that when you're a kid you don't think about necessarily, or at least many kids have the privilege of not having to think about. And so for many readers, this becomes the first book where these greater issues of justice and then more localized issues of race and class really come to the fore. And so that moral clarity... I think is valuable. It serves a real purpose for, especially for a young reader. But when you then see a book like *Go Set a Watchman in which specifically that kind of moral clarity is unveiled for being childish and the viewing of Atticus as a hero figure is revealed to be the foolishness of being a child, essentially that does lay bare a little bit, the ways that Mockingbird fails, the ways that it falls short mm. of really being a fully realized work of literature
2: is that I think reading goes at a Watchman calls into question whether To Kill a Mockingbird actually had moral clarity and whether it didn't have a kind of moral self-deception or moral sentimentality at its heart. And this, again, is something that Malcolm wrote about you know, years ago, but I think reading this book made me, which was a, a reading I kind of resisted in some ways, but reading this book made me think, no, that reading is really the correct reading because Atticus is an accommodator in that book. It's really easy to miss that and to not see that, and there's these kind of beautiful passages of writing, and there's many things about it that are really powerful, and she is trying to write about the ugliness of racism and how it was possible to have a position that wasn't, you know, as overtly ugly, but I think what's so uncomfortable about a ghost at watchman is that you really see the full ugliness of Atticus's position, and he actually does seem like the same person, he's just a person who's now saying things like, the Negroes are like children and they're backward." You know, do we really want to give them the vote? Only responsible, you know, he takes the kind of Jeffersonian, only the responsible, you know, adults should be able to vote. And when you look back at Phil Mockingbird, you know, his kind of accommodation of the Klan, and it was just his political organization, and was, you know, all of a sudden, all this looks a little bit different in retrospect. So for me, it's precisely that this book calls into question the moral clarity of the last book that makes me wonder about it. Again, I think Phil Mockingbird is a beautiful book. It's beautifully written. So many of the passages of kind of, you know, idealized, nostalgic summer, all of the stuff between her and Gill and that, that's all extraordinary. But are those plot mechanics exactly what we thought they
1: were? Ever since the story came out that this book existed, the ghost of Watchman existed and was going to be put into print, I have sort of maintained that I just wished that they would wait and do this after Harper Lee was dead. But I now am finding myself having read it, wishing that, in fact, they had released it like 30 years ago and that Harper Lee would have done interviews about it. Because I would really like to know, because this book is clearly written out of anger. It seems very clearly written out of Harper Lee's own anger about returning from New York to her hometown and seeing her hometown with different eyes. And the editorial process that this book went through to become To Kill a Mockingbird in many ways led to a book that – At the very least, as you say, Megan, cloaks the things that Harper Lee was mad at her town about as represented by Atticus in a sort of a much nicer mantle. It makes him a character who most readers can mistake for being a noble hero. And so I'm so curious whether that was because her feelings evolved, because her editor- steered her in that direction because they thought it would just make for a better or more saleable or more successful book. I'm so curious about those questions, which I assume we will never know the answer to, and that's a bummer.
0: Right. So you're asking, is this an act of condescension on her part? Like she's saying, I'm going to sugarcoat this story so that people will find it more palatable. Or did she actually move in her understanding and and really come to see Atticus more as this shining guy? Right
2: actually that binary could be complicated too to say. It doesn't have to be either or. I mean, the thing about To Kill a Mockingbird that's so different from this book, two things. One, technically this book is written in a third person, right? Mm-hmm. So we meet Jean-Louise from a third person perspective. We're not privy to her thoughts.
1: Though it's a very messy third person. Right. A third
0: person. <laughs> sometimes it sometimes forgets goes into a, the third
2: person. It goes into a kind of internal monologue in places in really creaky, awkward way. Right? But then To Kill a Mockingbird is the first person and then of course To Kill a Mockingbird is narrated by a child. There's an adult posing as a child, but it's really immersed in a child's point of view. And of course, the child's doubt, as this novel does tell us, did see her father in this light. So in a way, it doesn't have to be cynical for her to have told the story that way. And maybe she thought she was giving these little clues and she was representing what that era was like, how she thought of it. But it definitely is a more palatable story than this very angry, very unprocessed. In fact, it's also a much better story, right, than this. And maybe we should read some of the... I feel like maybe it would be helpful to those if we've read some of those really intense dialogue passages between her and Atticus.
0: But let's pause for a second for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Slate Audio Book Club was brought to you by WhisperSync for Voice, an Amazon and Audible innovation. Wish you had more time to read? Here's how you can create more book time. Add narration to your Kindle eBooks. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. The best part is that the app knows where you are in the book, so you'll pick up the story right where you stopped reading. Enjoy those books you've been meaning to read but just haven't had the time to. Learn how to add narration to your Kindle eBooks by visiting www.amazon.com audiobookclub. And now back to the show.
1: One of the sections that I wanted to read, it's her big confrontation with Atticus, I think in the town square near his legal offices, right in the spot where her brother, Jem, died Mm -hmm. years before. And she's very emotional. And she confronts him about her discovery that he has been attending these citizens council meetings and giving credence and time to the words of bigots. And she's been driven crazy about that. And This book is filled with long, long, long arguments between Scout and other people, or people lecturing Scout. And I guess To Kill a Mockingbird also had a lot of scenes of Atticus sort of lecturing people, but boy, it just seemed more homespun and enjoyable in that book. But I'll just read a short section from the bottom of page 251. Her voice was heavy with sarcasm. We've agreed that they're backwards, speaking of the town's black residents, that they're illiterate, that they're dirty and comical and shiftless and no good, they're infants and they're stupid, some of them, but we haven't agreed on one thing and we never will. You deny that they're human. How so? Atticus says. You deny them hope. Any man in this world, Atticus, any man who has a head and arms and legs, was born with hope in his heart. You won't find that in the Constitution. I picked that up in church somewhere. They are simple people, most of them, but that doesn't make them subhuman. You are telling them that Jesus loves them, but not much. You are using frightful means to justify ends that you think are for the good of the most people. Your ends may well be right. I think I believe in the same ends. But you cannot use people as your pawns, Atticus. You cannot. Hitler and that crowd in Russia have done some lovely things for their lands, and they slaughter tens of millions of people doing them. Atticus smiled. Hitler, eh? So this really called to mind to me that a lot of the conversations – in this book a lot of the arguments in this book seem pitched almost exactly at the level of modern day internet comment threads <laughs> right down to her pulling out hitler like her throwing hitler in his face yeah. uh, there's a later scene where she literally takes down a dictionary and looks up a word to define it to someone just Dig the it. way people yeah. yeah just the way people do in comment threads and it struck me as emblematic of one of the ways that this book really felt unprocessed to me is that it's so clearly seems to me, even though the sort of the big dramatic shift at the end is someone realizing the folly of this their once simplistic views, it feels to me like a real product of like a thirty year old writer who thinks she's finally figured it all out. she has figured out the world, she's figured out what her whole childhood was about, and she's putting it down on paper.
2: I actually feel sort of the same thing, but like from an, like an inverted lens, Dan, which is I totally agree with your characterization, but in a way it felt to me totally the product of someone who hadn't figured out anything and therefore had to make this really clunky, let's just describe what happens at the end of the book, right? <laughs> so the flashpoint here is the Supreme Court lawsuit from 1958, the NAACP case against Alabama, in which they were organizing in Alabama, right, on behalf of civil rights and as I understand it. There was a lawsuit against them saying, you can't do this because you have to get state approval as an organization to do business here. And that was how sort of white community was trying to push, you know, hold back this kind of organization. Um, And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the NAACP. And this is what everyone in the town is so angry about. And a huge part of the book is about federal rights versus states' rights. So, which feels obviously like a very contemporary argument, right? If you're going to argue about big government, there's a lot of discussion on big government and, you know, her father sitting up and saying, you're such a state's rightist, you make me look like a Roosevelt liberal by comparison, mm-hmm. right? So, in that sense, I totally agree. It feels like this kind of comment-ready discussions. there's this kind of incredible anger But then this really strange thing happens at the end. They have this horrific fight, she and Atticus. Atticus says these things. I was going to read the passage you read, which is great. There's another horrible passage. Basically, it's where he says to her... Sorry, let me find it. Um, Atticus says to her, they're like children.
1: Bottom of 246.
2: So Atticus says to her, you know, honey, you do not seem to understand that the Negroes down here are still in their childhood as a people. You should know it. You've seen it all their life. They've made terrific progress in adapting themselves to white ways, but they're far from it yet. They were coming along fine, traveling at a rate they could absorb. More of them voted than ever before. Then the NAACP stepped in with its fantastic demands and shoddy ideas of government. Can you blame the South for resenting being told what to do about its own people by people who have no idea of its daily problems? Right? And so this conversation goes on. It gets very, very heated. Scar says she's going to leave or John jump. To and then she runs into her uncle, who, in order to convince her of, that she's wrong, punches her in the face. Yes. Twice. Gets, gets her drunk. And then says, honey, you just need to accept that people sometimes aren't God." And then that's the great resolution of the book, like, oh, whoops, Atticus has these horrible races views, but you know what? That's just the way it is here. And you know what? My uncle has helped me see the light, the deus ex machina here, and her being punched <laughs> in the face by her being given with you. Like, it's just such a weird, problematic book, right? It's such a problematic ending.
1: It's extremely weird, and it's extremely yeah. weird that the realization she comes to isn't even about the substance of his views. Mm-hmm. It is instead simply about the error of her own, but not her views about race, just right. her simplistic views about her father.
2: Right, and then the idea is you should just accommodate other people's racism. And I, as a reader, have trouble getting on board with that. Right? I think any <laughs> 2015, like, she basically is like, okay, it's okay for the South to have this, like, let's go slow, the Negro, their children point of view. Even if I don't have it, it's okay for others to have it because we all have individual consciences. But this is such a weird way of thinking about being a citizen of a nation,
1: I think. While it's a dramatization, it seemed to me, of someone who grew up in the South and is slowly coming to grips with what that means and still wrestling with it but not doing a particularly good job of it and still viewing things through the lens of her own perception and her own close relations and her own small town uh, and struggling to really – think about or embrace the big picture in a way that we would hope anyone addressing these issues in a novel now would do.
0: Right. And I think this comes back, Megan, to your point about Jean Louise being the blind one. And the trope is that she is constantly the one who must open her eyes. And what she's seeing is not that her father has these abhorrent views, finally, but what she's seeing is Oh, I had all these blinkers on. I need to not be a bigot myself and reconcile. And what a strange, what a strange revelation to finally come to at the end.
2: It's great that you brought up that word because, of course, that's the hinge on which her change of heart happens, which is she decides to stay and make him and it's that her uncle calls her a bigot, right? So this is an incredible piece of rhetorical equivocation mm-hmm. <laughs> from my perspective. Now, what I would say, though, so on the other hand, because I think maybe some Southern readers would have other things to say, which is that it does, in a really powerful way, at times, evoke the kind of otherness of the South, mm-hmm. to me, as, a, as someone who grew up in the Northeast, right? There is this way in which Southern views come through very fully here, because even jean Louise sort of thinks that the Supreme Court should not have ruled this way. And even she is head up about it, though she's the liberal in the book, right? And at one point, there's a long discussion between her and her uncle about the South as a kind of modern-day England, it is having ties to England as being a place where class and the ideas of trash or, you know, white trash are so important that that's part of what's led to the racism that we see there, right? So it's very interesting into a kind of trying to dramatize what it's like to grow up in a South with sort of the wrong political dude, but nonetheless to be kind of steeped in the lemonade and summertime and porches and, and dialogue of the South. And that was where I thought I thought, okay, here's the seeds of To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And that comes through, I think, most clearly in this book, in the character of Henry, her, yeah. who is um, Atticus's protege and the man she's always sort of assumed she will end up with eventually she dates him when she comes back to town every summer and this issue directly affects him it directly affects his life he's trash basically who has been raised up by atticus and brought into society in town and he feels he his defense of his attendance at that meeting to scout His defense of his views is that he does what he has to do to get by because he doesn't have the ability, as Scout does, for example, to be against the views of most of the white people in town and for people to laugh it off because she she may have those views, but she's still a finch. She's still Atticus's daughter. He doesn't have that ability. uh, So he has to, you know, get by if he wants to make a life in this town. And there's that really quite amazing scene, actually, one of the only scenes in the book that really pleasantly surprised me was that crazy scene between Scout and her aunt early in the book when her aunt just goes off on Henry about how he basically is, was, and always will be Nada. And that scene, I thought, it really struck me how much more sure this book seemed and the Harper Lee of this book seemed in dealing with that particular class distinction Mm. and that class conflict, how much better she was dealing with that and Henry's concerns and... Scout's concerns and Aunt Alexander's concerns than she was in dealing with the racial issues that are also at play in this book. And so you contrast the scenes between Scout and Henry, for example, and then that weird scene between Scout and Calpurnia when she visits Calpurnia's house. What did you guys think of that scene?
2: Look, it's hard in some ways to talk about this book because you're like, this is a draft by someone who hasn't figured out how to write a novel. Right. (laughs) She wrote this novel to figure out some things about how to write a novel. And that scene is a really important scene. Calpurnia basically treats her like a white person, right? Instead of treating her like the girl she's raised, like, you know, the girl we see in To Kill a Mockingbird and the Calpurnia we see in that book, right? That kind of loving, intimate relationship. Instead, Calpurnia says, like, I can't, you know... Scout, Jean-Louis says to her, what are you doing to me? And she says, Calpurnia says, what are you doing to us, right? right. Which could be a very powerful scene, but she almost just doesn't even describe... It's very confusing, actually, because Calpurnia, she says something about Calpurnia sitting with this haughtiness, but you don't even really see what's happened or how the body language has changed or there's nothing in the mechanics of the scene as it's written that dramatized. A lot of this book has the perennial, you know, tell rather than showing
1: problem. This I book thought. is like a really great argument for MFA programs. <laughs> <laughs> like if you gave this to a good MFA workshop, they it would have a number of excellent suggestions on how to make individual scenes better.
0: Yes. I would also add the way I sort of phrased that in my head was that To Kill a Mockingbird was really wonderful at externalizing all the psychological drama that was Mm -hmm. going on with Scout while she was, you know, becoming disenchanted with Maycomb. And here, not only is the disenchantment scaled down, so it's sort of on the level of individual character, it's Atticus who's failed her, not make home, but the disenchantment is also completely confined to conversations that she has with this other character.
2: That's totally true, yeah. There's one really excellent passage that I'm looking for. There were a couple really, really fabulous passages, and now I cannot find it because this book has a weird annoying, you know, that page cutting that makes it hard to find things. But there's a passage about a guy who's a kind of powerful figure in Maycomb, and he, Whitney something, Do you guys remember this, and she describes how there's someone like this in every county, and They're kind of a rich person who basically makes their life off the kind of blood of poor people. And it's a really powerful little set piece. The writing has a kind of authority, a kind of descriptive authority. But I think what she's best at in this book, what you do see, is that she has this wonderful descriptive power. The problem with this book is that she very rarely uses them. When she does, it's great. But that passage, I thought, wow, that little, like, character that place set piece that she does so well in To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: It's interesting because Atticus makes his arguments as a lawyer, so he's using reason and principle, and he's sort of a man of the head. And I think Harper Lee is very definitely, and you can see it really here, and you also see it in To Kill a Mockingbird. She's a novelist of the heart. And so she doesn't err a lot, even in Watchmen, when she is, you know, delivering emotions to us, but she does err in making arguments. So she makes errors of the head and not of the heart. And I think one of the triumphs of To Kill a Mockingbird is she realized, oh, no, my mode is this more kind of descriptive and um, evocative, less on the nose argumentative style.
2: And that by writing that way, one does make a kind of argument, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of argument is often more subtle. I mean, it's interesting. I was trying to think, okay, who can do this kind of argumentative, long dialogue passages well? Like, they're very hard to do. And one person who can, I think, is Philip Roth, right? And his books are not all as explicitly political as this book, but some of them have a kind of political argument and an argument about America that's being made. And he does it in dialogue very, very well. but there's a kind of measuredness and a sense of control that he's controlling the character's points of views. And this book felt a little bit to me like she had just had this argument with her father in real life, you know, and had sat right. down and written it kind of like from her journal almost. and was still, you know, it gave, you know, light to the wisdom of the statement, you know, recollected and, you know poetry slash literature is, you know, emotions recollected in tranquility. There's not actually a lot of tranquility yet in this book. And when doesn't, I felt she hadn't figured out what she really thought.
1: I had almost the exact same thought as you, Megan. I had this vision of her literally on the train back to New York, like furiously writing all this stuff down after having some kind of huge fight with someone, someone in her hometown, Uh, you know, and writing it all down and sending it off to Truman Capote and being like, this is how I feel about everything.
0: Yeah. I just want to quickly return to the idea of class, like the treatment of class versus the treatment of race here. I thought one way that she was really sharp, although it was still underdeveloped, was in talking about gender roles and femininity and maybe the rise of feminism. And I was wondering if either of you had any reaction to Scout as a woman as opposed to Scout as this kind of tomboy, genderless creature in To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: That scene of the coffee with Scout. And all the ladies of Maycomb seem like a real missed opportunity of a scene because that's clearly that is what that scene was meant to explore the ways that she views herself as not fitting in with the town as a whole, but also specifically with the women of the town, she can't view herself as the same kind of woman as them. As written, as with many scenes, as you've talked about, Megan, it just ends up being clunky and, like, the joke about how she goes up and down the line and hears these little snatches of conversation is overplayed and not that funny, and it doesn't work that well. But, like, that is a moment where it seemed to me like the book was beginning to think about some of these issues, but I wouldn't say that I got, like, a huge sense of it being particularly like, smart or overwhelmingly interested in those issues, but maybe you guys saw more than I did.
2: I thought, you know, she clearly does care about this, and the the portrait of Scout as a tomboy comes, I think, out of her sense of... She and Truman Capote apparently bonded over their um, uh, sense of kind of apartness, I think was the word he used, but I can't remember exactly what what his word was. And I think that sense of apartness is very powerful, and she does have interesting things potentially to... Say about it, but it just feels, as you say, so hasty. I thought everything in this book was very, very hasty and kind of just written too fast, not poured over enough. The jokes are kind of first draft jokes. She used to write this column when she was in college called Caustic Comment, right? And she's capable of being quite witty and sharp. And there's.
1: For Rammer Jammer, right? She wrote that for Rammer Jammer?
2: (laughs) Yes,
1: read the the humor (laughs) magazine at the University of Alabama.
2: (laughs) Thank for clarifying that. I did not know that. Um, and this book has this kind of jocular, joking, it's very weird, but the first hundred pages are just kind of jocular mm-hmm. and joking and a lot of, like, local humor and she's trying to be very funny about the conductor and how he's going to, like, take the train past the station just to, like, take her out, basically, and then be like, ha, 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 now you can get off. Like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the yeah, first hundred okay. pages of the book. Definitely. And then it just changes. Right. And then suddenly she's like, oh, I picked up this pamphlet Attica's head and it has this horrible racist stuff. And then suddenly the book goes off on a different track. So it really just feels like, you know, it's weird to have published this as a novel. I think this is a very cynical strategy on the part of our dear publisher, Harper. You know, it should be presented as a rough draft, not as a novel.
1: As an archival document, it is fascinating. As a Harper Lee novel that people buy millions of copies of, it's like infuriating. Exactly. Well, let's view this book once and for all as a great testament to how awesome editors are and how everyone should give the editor in their life a big hug for all mm. that we do.
2: I would agree. I would hug both of you.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, so I'm, I'm going to skip the part where we say, would you recommend this book? Because I think it's pretty clear. I would
1: recommend this book for people who are really fascinated by that era of the South, and who, especially for people who have sort of wistful, fond memories of To Kill a Mockingbird that they don't quite trust. It's like a great correction to that sort of vague feeling that maybe you got that book wrong. I totally
0: agree. Oh my gosh, I remembered the literary antecedent of all these long discursive conversations I was trying to think who mm-hmm. Uncle Finch reminded me of. And it's the angel Gabriel in Paradise Lost who comes down to <laughs> Adam and Eve, or I think it's just Adam, and explains like, this is how everything works. Right. This is what God did. Any questions? And Adam's like, no, no, thank you, your, your radiance. you know, That was very illuminating. And that's like the end of the scene. So thank you yeah. guys for inadvertently sparking that
2: memory. <laughs> Our radiance helped you. Illuminated.
0: Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Megan. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates' bold and personal exploration of race in America. Read it and join us for our discussion in September. Slate's audiobook club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. The homepage for the Slate book review is slate.com/books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audio book club at slate.com/abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com/slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our beloved producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Dan Coyce and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.